Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. In our productivity-obsessed, always-on, hustle-focused culture, it's really easy for constant busyness to become a badge of honor. And hey, look, we all have things we want to accomplish in our lives, and sometimes that means putting in the effort and burning the midnight oil. I have definitely had plenty of long days and late nights creating this podcast, but it's been fulfilling work and very meaningful to me. But sometimes that efforting transforms from the intense but reasonable pursuit of our goals into workaholism, a compulsive and even addictive drive to work. Today, we'll learn what workaholism is really, the psychological functions it serves, and how it relates to other forms of addictive behavior. Then we'll learn the general structure for how to approach changing behaviors like workaholism. I'm really looking forward to that. And finally, we'll cover some specific interventions that can help us out. To help me do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Forrest. And as a bit of a personal confession, in the context of something like 300-plus podcast episodes at this point, this is the first one that has given me pause in terms of looking <laughs> internally at, huh, really, huh. I, <laughs> Maybe I it's the second one, this but definitely this one. And um, <laughs> so we'll be exploring what workaholism is, isn't, and so forth. But I just want to say I, de- I have some skin in this game, in this topic. Look, this was not intended as an intervention. To be clear, I'm not, I'm not subtweeting you with this particular podcast episode. Wait, wait. What are those family members and friends doing right outside my door? <laughs> We've all gathered to support you here, Dad. We've all gathered to support you. Oh, no. Oh, man. This is, this is not a criticism. It's just an opportunity for growth. Um, okay. <laughs> but all jokes aside, I, I think that maybe in your story, there's actually something that we can cue on for the first thing that we wanted to talk about a little bit, which which is differentiating problematic forms of workaholism from all of the other stuff. You know, the desire to pursue our goals in a meaningful way to achieve big things out in the world. Like, you've achieved a lot in your life, objectively. And in order to do that, you've done a lot of work and you've worked hard, my guy. Um, You're, you know, 70 years old and you're still grinding away. (laughs) And it's, it's an incredibly impressive work ethic. And maybe you're right. Maybe there's a point where it tips from being an incredibly impressive work ethic to being some other kind of thing. And it's that some other kind of thing that we want to explore today. That's great. I think about, you know, my dad and and his his life. I think about my mom and hers and and her mom and my dad growing up on a ranch, my mom, the daughter of a single mother restaurant hostess. And they just had to clock a lot of hours. You know, they grew up in the Depression. It was real. And so how do we understand the difference between circumstances and also aspirations? I was thinking about people who, gosh, are in a refugee camp working for, you know, Medicine Sans Frontières, you know, Doctors Without Borders. They're they're clocking 80-hour work weeks and other kinds of things. So what are the the differences for us? Yeah, and I want to give a quick shout out here to one researcher in particular, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. I think it's Cecily Andresen. And she has done a lot of work related to workaholism. Mm. So 
There you go. Insert joke here. Uh, and there are two pieces of research in particular. The first one is Workaholism and Overview and Current Status of the Research. That was published in 2014. And then the second one is The Relationships Between Workaholism and Symptoms of Psychiatric Disorders, a large-scale cross-sectional study, and that was published in 2016. So there's going to be a fair amount of information from those two pieces that I am uh, on loan with for this particular episode. So I just wanted to give some credit where credit was due here. But from the first of those two Two articles, there was a definition offered of workaholism, and it's the drive to work excessively and compulsively. And here's maybe another definition, being overly concerned about work, driven by an uncontrollable work motivation, and investing so much time and effort in work that it impairs other important life areas. And for me, what I really want to do here before we get started is differentiate that from what you're describing, Dad. Like there's a difference between being a workaholic, somebody particularly who's using work as a kind of coping mechanism, a way to solve their anxieties or avoid other kinds of painful experiences, or even just as like a socially validated form of addiction, essentially, versus somebody who is a single parent who's working two jobs who needs to bring home the bacon. Mm. Or frankly, a lot of the problems that stem from capitalism, where the reality is that if you're not working 50, 60, 70 hours a week, you could be on the chopping block at your high-stakes tech employee or, mm. or whatever your personal circumstances might be. Those people would not meet the qualification for being a workaholic because there are outside factors, outside influences that are forcing them to engage in this kind of a behavior. So does that seem like a fair place to start? That's a good place. I wonder also about people who love what they do. Mm -hmm. There's that dimension. And because they love what they do, they do it, you know, a lot. Uh, and yeah. whatever that is, sure, they, totally. they do mm -hmm. it a lot. And then I also think about the dimension of service. People mm -hmm. also mm -hmm. in uh, service contexts who, again, are clocking 60, 80 hours a week. I want, and, and to me, those are important distinctions, I guess. I think also there can be an issue in work-life balance in which one person, let's say, is working a ton and their big job, 80 hours a week, is like the elephant in the room. It just crowds everything to the margins in terms of family life. And mm -hmm. it's not that they're working compulsively as a way to avoid certain experiences. We're going to get into that, I'm sure, pretty soon. So it's not the compulsiveness of it. But on the other hand, it really is out of balance. It really is out of balance. Yeah. And then there have got to be some choices about what are your actual priorities, especially as you're locating this so wisely in the social, political, cultural context in which working 80 hours a week, you know, it can be a passion for somebody. But on the other hand, other aspects of your life that don't have such immediate obvious rewards as making money or getting promoted or feeling part of a team in which everybody's working that hard, like coming home and having dinner with your kids. Yet, over the long haul, those other really important parts of your life get crowded to the margins. And a person has yeah. to kind of wisely listen to the beat of those softer drummers, if you will, mm -hmm. to bring their life more into some kind of long-term sanity and harmony. A separate but related issue that you're pointing to here, Dad, is burnout. Yeah, And I had a conversation a while back with Laura van der Nude Lipsky to give a shout out. She wrote The Age of Overwhelm, um, which is a great book on burnout and particularly caregiver fatigue. Mm. And there are people who 
to use the examples that you've given already, like are working in a hospital or something like that, they find their work very meaningful. They're highly engaged with it. They really care. It's a setting where you you can't really not work a lot in order to fulfill the obligations of the job. And still, it is not sustainable for them to engage in that kind of a job, high stress, weird hours for 80 hours a week for the rest of their life. They have to find some other kind of a balance. And that's also somebody that I wouldn't necessarily put under the the workaholic label. So how would we describe workaholism then if we've said all these things that it isn't? And I think that it gets to that coping strategy bit mm. that you were saying a second ago, Dad. So what's a coping strategy? It's a behavior that we perform in response to stress, yeah. typically one that helps us avoid other kinds of painful experiences. Is that, again, fair, Dad? Excellent definition, textbook. Great. Avoidance, yep. And so there are different kinds of things we might be trying to avoid. To give a couple of examples here, using work as an escape from emotional stressors of different kinds, like it might separate you from other aspects of your life that you find particularly unpleasant right now. And this could be a, a problematic relationship. It could be thoughts and feelings that you find difficult or other issues that you don't know how to address, but you really do know how to put in the time at work. Building on what you said, closeness in general. I mean, work work is instrumental. Typically, you're you're a hammer and you're trying to deal with nails to make things, et cetera, broadly. And that's really different from the vulnerability, the openness, the unpredictability, the less controllability in intimate relationships or just friendships, even deep relationships. Mm. So work, I think that's one of the big things that I think work can be used to avoid. Another one is as a way to kind of preempt criticism. Mm. You know, I, I know for myself, I have a lot of rejection sensitivity. I really want people to like the work that yeah. I do. And one way to preempt that fear that they won't like it is by really excessively grinding away on the project that I'm doing. Another form this could take maybe for people are fears of uncertainty and feeling like they can control all aspects of a given project or maybe of their work life in general could be a way to deal with some of those fears. Have you thought much about your own inner audience? The anticipated, imagined, internalized audience and its reaction. So I think a lot of what we do is affective forecasting in the sense that mm, we imagine uh -huh going down one road or another road, and how would the audience react? That kind of vague, not entirely faceless. Some of the faces there are your music teacher when you were a kid or the priest or your grandparents or something. They're in the, they're in the crowd there looking at you with their arms crossed, right? And I think uh, one of the motivations for workaholism is a kind of propitiation of the angry gods. It's a kind of on a daily basis, if you make your offering of being exhausted when you go to bed, then at least today they can't find too much fault with you. And, yeah. and there, there's this internal process that happens very quickly within a few seconds, if not less, in which we kind of anticipate what the reaction would be from that internalized audience. And then that leads us down one road or another. And if we anticipate that the reaction is going to be disapproval, exile or scorn, <laughs> then... We clock another 12-hour day. Wow. I think that's a great point, Dad. And to try to answer your question about my relationship with my own internal audience, I think that I, I have these kind of two different parts. One part is really pretty, like, warm and generous, and that's the part that I think of as being, like, myself. Yeah. 
But then there's my estimation of the appraisal of other people. Mm. And yeah. to your point, because I have so much less control over that, it's the the range of outcomes. I know how I feel about my work, but I don't know how other people feel about my work or my effort or who I am broadly with any of this stuff. And so because that range of outcomes is so much wider, I think there's a part of me that feels like I, I need to do so much more efforting around it to try to tighten that range of outcomes and bring up the floor of it, if that makes sense. I want to follow up on that. I just was thinking that yeah. in in reality, unless someone is living in a very tight, quite oppressive culture, like a family system, let's say, and some cultures are more like that, they, they can be incredibly nurturing because they're so tight, tightly woven together, but they can also be very critical and controlling. Mm-hmm. In our, in let's say Western cultures or ones in which the family system is looser, it's airier, there's more separation, there's less effective extended family, then actually for most people, the internalized audience is much more consequential than the objective external audience because the external audience oh sure yeah just doesn't care it doesn't know yeah. it doesn't care yeah, this is a great point it kind of yeah. it's a you know maybe there's a glancing eyebrow raised but then you move on it's the internalized audience that as john kabat-zinn's book titled wherever you go there you are <laughs> or wherever you go <laughs> there's the audience you know it's that internal audience totally and i think it can actually be a really helpful practice and this hey, we're kind of skipping to the end here a little bit, but just like a general practice that's really helpful is to compare your concerns with what people's responses could be or what people's responses might be to what they actually end up being over and over again. Because we so overestimate, to your point, how strong people's reactions are going to be to our work, in part because everyone's kind of obsessed with their own internal narrative and their own internal audience in ways that are totally normal, like not narcissistic. We're just in our own worlds, and people tend to care a lot less than we think they will. Wouldn't it be interesting, just as a thought experiment, people can do it right now and they can reflect on it. If you could flip a switch or take, I forget, red or blue, something, take a, take the green pill. There we go. Take the red pill? I don't know. Which I one know, it it's okay. kind of gotten politicized, but we're just going to go the green pill <laughs> oh, yeah. here. Okay, on brand. Anyway, and just deactivate the internal audience. If you could deactivate your internal audience, and then move through your day without reference to it. You'd be appropriately aware of and you know, anticipating and navigating externalized audiences, real people, okay, and their responses to you. But it, if you were to do it in a way that was utterly free of any reference to the internalized audience, how would that change? What would that be day? like? Yeah, what would oh that be God, like? Oh my God, what a great question. I, I yeah. love that question. I think that's a fantastic question, Dad. And those little like interrupt questions, I had one with a friend recently where I asked something like, if you could wake up tomorrow and just be able to do one thing, like inside your own mind, what would that one thing be? If you could choose one thing that you just get to wake up and have access to that, like what would it be for you? And it can be really helpful to just like ask those little reflective, like if this one thing changed, how would all of these other things change for you questions? Those can be really powerful. Completely. I'm just kind of curious when you, the one thing is it that, you could have a set of experiences, kind of like in virtual virtual reality, or if there was a psychological factor that was different or what? Yeah, I mean it more like psychological factor because okay. you know I am who I am, so that's what I tend to focus on. And also, we have a little bit more control over that. We don't have perfect control over it, but we have a little bit more 
more influence over what's going on inside of the coconut, as you like to say, than what's going on in our external world. And th this is somebody whose external world is pretty constrained. Yeah. And we were having a conversation about their life and That's I was a great just trying question. to be kind of generally supportive. So yeah, I was more focused on that internal aspect. I mean, where my highly active imagination went in a split second was, oh, I was inhabiting the world of one of Ian Banks's culture novels, where oh my, my buddy was a hypersentient, <laughs> 100 kilometer long spaceship and uh -huh, yeah, i was yeah, working yeah. for special circumstances with my drone buddy and oh we were going to go help some less advanced civilization on a secret mission yeah wow <laughs> i don't know if uh, listeners remember this but way back when we talked about rick's relationship with an inkblot test that uh he took i, I want to say this was like 30 years ago oh, yeah, 40 yeah. years ago pre-license on yeah. the way to licensure free pre-licensure and uh the the person who administered the test was like do you have psychotic tendencies and my dad was like no i just have an active imagination they're like all right that explains it too anyways that, that might be a perfect example of it that i remember i do want to loop back to, oh, yeah, to workaholism here yeah okay we've wandered a little far afield in this one i like it though i'm, I'm really happy with this so we were just talking about uh various ways that workaholism could show yeah. up as a kind of anxious avoidant coping mechanism yeah. one other one that i want to talk about here before we move on is essentially our own desires for both competence on the one hand and approval seeking on the other, mm, because we've talked yeah. about it so far as a way to avoid criticism or a way to avoid pain. But what about it as a way for us to, inside of our own you know, mind, like achieve a measure of worth, our own desire to like fill up that cup of our self-worth and we're just pursuing it in an extremely externally referenced way, where the only way that we can find to fill it is by being successful out in the world. And I think yeah. that workaholism really shows up that way too. Here's a weird one for us, and just to kind of be self-disclosed too. So as I've shared on the pod, and you know, growing up, I was young, going through school, that sort of native natural shyness and anxiety, uh, et cetera, and maybe some other things led me to feeling very much like an outsider. And I became quite withdrawn. And I even withdrew from ordinary opportunities from other kids to kind of join the group or be part of something because I was like so nervous that I, I would just screw up and I just backed away from it, gave me the willies. Okay, now over, you know, 50-year process, some of what I have sought is inclusion at the head table with the cool kids. Mm. In some ways, mm -hmm. proportionate to whatever my natural abilities are. So there's been some virtuous aspect of it. But definitely part of that has been, um, I think of the two ponies of motives running side by side, the noble pony and the naughty pony or the neurotic pony. And if they're going down the same road, it's a road worth going down, but it's useful mm. to differentiate what your motives are. And definitely some of my motivations were like neurotic seeking of narcissistic supplies and so forth. You know, nothing to be ashamed of, just ordinary, normal human psychology, but still not the wisest motivation of all. Okay, so what's interesting is to wonder about the situation in which a person is pursuing problematic goals in a way that's reasonable given the goal. You know, there it's reasonable to work 60 to 80 hours a week for some years maybe to kind of generate the output, to generate the accomplishments that would help you to kind of worm your way to the head table, particularly when you're starting kind of off to the side, 
So the point I'm making is I think often for people, the amount of work they're doing is a reasonable strategy in pursuit of, I'll say, an unreasonable goal. What do you think about that? Well, I think it makes total sense. And maybe a, a, a layer to this that I actually attach to. I So to to disclose, I, I actually thought you were going to go in a different direction with this. And I always find it interesting when we kind of anticipate what the person's about to say, oh, yeah. and we're just wrong. And because it suggests that there's sort of like a branching oh. paths moment and how oh. to look at an issue, right? And so where I thought you were going to go with this, Dad, is that you were an extremely intelligent and very successful in school kid. Yeah. And your your home arena was a little complex, maybe lacking certain forms of nurturance that we've talked about in the podcast of the past, even though, you know, as you've also said, your parents were fundamentally good-hearted, good people. Yeah. But there were emotional supplies you were looking for, but you were really successful at school. And I would imagine got a certain amount of praise for being a smart, head on straight, gonna go to UCLA kind of at 16 years old or whatever it was, kind of guy. And so if that's the arena where you're getting what I was describing earlier, those those ways to see yourself as a worthy person and as somebody who receives praise in this kind of a way, wow, that becomes the strategy, right? I mean, that was very much true for myself. And so I also oriented in that kind of a way where I really filled myself up by being a smart, achievement-oriented person. And so I'm just saying this as, hey, maybe you developed some of those behaviors in part because like, that's how you received praise. And so it became a very sensible strategy, to your point, to pursue this goal of achieving this kind of praise or achieving this kind of filling yourself up around your effectiveness in the world or whatever felt good to you. Does do you think that's kind of fair? Or? That was interesting the way you went. Again, it was a different different direction. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also a question about what are the vehicles that we know. Yeah, yeah. This might be a better way to talk about it. Actually, I like this. Yeah, and just playing with it a little bit. What if you have a person who, let's say hypothetically, is very talented at emotional intelligence and social intelligence, or just naturally, as Laurel described, someone as a social savant. Someone who's just really, really, really good at relationships. Okay. And because you're and you're good at it. You like it and the world rewards you for that. So let then you become that person who in your social system is spending 60 to 80 hours a week repairing, mending, nurturing, getting involved with relationships. Would we call that person a workaholic? Mm, you, they're clocking 60 hours a week plus on their chosen mode of task accomplishment, if you will, social task broadly, we wouldn't really think of them that way. But that is the gift that they have. I think maybe part of it is has to do with our relationship to what we're really good at. And the thing that I am raising by my bottom line is something I've reflected on a lot that does go to your observation of my history, in which we get captured by our talents, captured yeah. by our talents. The world rewards them, they become familiar, and then we just kind of get sucked into that groove. That becomes the strange attractor in the complex system of our futures, you know, our possible futures that just keeps drawing us. Now, is that workaholism? I don't know, but it can be in the service of it, and you got to be yeah, careful about yeah, it. Yeah, you're, That's you're what I'm opening at. the frame here a little bit, Dad, which I think is actually great inside of this conversation because there, I mean, people have very different lives. Uh, do we think about the the mother who is raising her child and spending however yeah. many hours a week. Yeah. I don't even know how many hours a week 
or the dad who's doing the same thing, yeah. whatever it is, do we think about that as workaholism? Well, like, yeah. of course not. So there are there are sort of layers to this that I think are really interesting that you're raising here. But kind of returning to workaholism in the more problematic form that we're describing as, as a coping mechanism, yeah. we can think about it in the context of other behaviors that are coping mechanisms of different kinds for depression and anxiety. And one of the most common ones of these are various forms of substance addiction. And it's really interesting if you get into this, because the word workaholism itself and the idea of it as a construct stems from the term alcoholism. And in both its structure and its function, it is really similar to other forms of addiction, including that it has characteristics with them like tolerance and withdrawal. People can actually enter like a little bit of a withdrawal phase when they stop working much in the same way. You uh, think about the guy who's like on vacation, but he's checking his phone at the pool. He just like he cannot unplug. And a lot of the early definitions that we had of workaholism were just based on how many hours a person is working a week. Like if you're working more than 50 hours a week, you're a workaholic. And these days, that's like at least half of the population, if not more. And I think that one of the layers to this whole thing that is actually raised by what you were talking about earlier, Dad, when you were kind of expanding the field on this, is that most addictions carry a social stigma. Workaholism has the opposite. It is socially validated. If you show up to work and you're drunk, you are probably getting fired. But if you show up to work having worked 80 hours a week for the previous three months, you're probably getting a promotion or, you know, whatever it is. So these behaviors are reinforced by our environment mm -hmm. rather than disincentivized by them. And I think that that is just like such a huge piece of this whole puzzle. And it's one of the reasons that it makes this like excessive work drive or work as a coping mechanism so insidious and so difficult to deal with. I've had many clients in which one of the people had a big job and then and they had children. So now they're in my office in part time. What do we do about the fact that, and it was often gendered, you know, dad mm -hmm. uh, is chief of surgery somewhere and family, equally educated mother is staying home with, you know, a two-year-old and a four-year-old and she's pregnant with the third child on the way. And the problem is that, he leaves for work at seven in the morning, and in the very first part of the morning, he's already checking the phone, tuning in what's happening. Anyway, he's getting home routinely at seven or eight. The kids go down at eight thirty, and so there's this very precious hour and a half window, and they're they're constantly kind of quarreling about him getting home to dinner and actually being emotionally available at dinner. And interestingly, the truth is that if he were to get home at say six o'clock uh, rather than seven it would reduce his work week by 10%, if that, but it would double, roughly, his time with his kids. It's a highly leveraged change. So we would we would see that. And then what would very often arise is the, you, you would just see this look across his face of guilt, mm. he's not home enough. Second, desire to be home. And then third, this kind of warrior-like mask would come over with a sense of um, belonging to the team that's on mission and that he would be a disappointment to them if he were clocking 10% fewer hours, for example. And I've seen this dynamic with women as well. I don't mean to genderize it, but there might be a familiar pattern to many people. That's a tough one. That's where the you really can feel the social pressures. I'm not sure I'd say it's workaholism in the more neurotically motivated sense that you're talking about, but it's definitely a huge work-life balance question. 
If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Because you just said a couple of demographic features where you talked about, you know, the the older dad coming home from the long office yeah, job yeah. and returning yeah, yeah. to his spouse, the woman who is rearing the children, you know, that kind of like very typical white picket fence thing. I actually do want to take a second here to talk about who's actually prone to these issues because yeah. We can have a hard time identifying issues inside of ourselves that sometimes other people can see more clearly externally, but also just like it's good to have a bit of a pointer to see if you might be in a demographic of people who's more vulnerable to this issue. And the reason that I want to flag this is because we do have an image often in our heads. Uh, sometimes it's taken from watching a little too much Mad Men or whatever else of the kind of person who is a workaholic. That person is typically an older white man working in a high leverage position, you know. Yeah. 
But the truth is that there was a really wonderful study done on this, and it was the second one that I quoted in the introduction, The Relationships Between Workaholism and Symptoms of Psychiatric Disorders. And what it found, to quote, individuals that were younger, female, not in a relationship, managers, self-employed, and met clinical cutoffs for ADHD, OCD, anxiety, and depression were more often categorized as workaholics. In general, what that means is that age is inversely correlated. The younger you are, the more likely you are to be a workaholic. That's wild. And also, interestingly, gender, more women met the qualification for workaholism than men. And you can think about these various social forces that yeah. might be pushing that. That's great. The need to overperform in the workplace, whatever might be going on. ADHD, in particular, was a huge flag for workaholism. Because think about the things I was talking about earlier, about that rejection sensitivity. That's a major feature of ADHD. Some people have a hyper-focus subtype of ADHD that allows them to really lock on to something for an extended period of time. Like It's a really short jump from that to these kind of excessively grinding tendencies, and from there it becomes a reinforcing behavior for all of the reasons that we've already talked about. So I thought that was just really fascinating. Did anybody in your world come to mind? Yes. Ooh. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm going to remove names here to protect the innocent, but for uh, you know maybe not so innocent in this case. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that like because we have this image, if we don't fit the classic demographic qualifiers that we think yeah. are workaholism-prone, it's really easy to just not put ourselves in that bucket. And that model that we have just like does not actually reflect reality at this point in 2023, or whenever the study was done, 2016, I think it was. How would you describe some examples that come to you? Make it concrete. I think that could help, yeah. I would say that the the demographics that I mentioned a second ago are are a pretty good marker. A substantial subset of my friend group at this point is queer. And so I don't know if it's a coincidence that like a solid half of them, I would say, meet the qualifications for workaholism. But for whatever wow. reason, that's a piece of the puzzle. So I don't know if there's a marginalized dimension to this whole thing, or yeah. maybe if you feel like you have to, again, kind of overperform in the workplace because your demographics aren't trad in terms of who's like led into that space. Yeah. That could be a total piece of the puzzle. Huh. I would say that 80% of the people, if I'm thinking of like four or five people off the top of my head, 80% of them would be women. I think yeah. I I have one male friend that probably hits the qualification, but I think I got like three or four female friends. Just again, it's a small sample size back of a napkin. But yeah, that's that's what comes to mind for me. Do they enjoy what they do? Like that's a whole dimension, the enjoyment factor. Satisfaction, fulfillment, enjoyment. Cool. Wow, what a great question. I think there's a feeling of obligation often driven by economic realities, mm. particularly for younger people these days. All, all of the people are under are like my age or younger yeah. that I'm thinking of. They're sort of mid-30s or younger. And there's just so much competition in the workplace right now. And looking for a job in general is just incredibly hard. It's very competitive. It's very fraught. And so there's a real pressure to maintain performance and to not get fired. And so I think that those are the primary drivers rather than a real love of what they're doing. I think there are, maybe half of them would say, oh yeah, I like what I do. And the other half would say, well, it pays the bills. I think that would probably be the split. I think that for most of them, 
there are aspects of these problematic forms of workaholism that we're describing, where there's an attachment to it, there's kind of a consumptive nature to it, there's the feeling of anxiety if they don't sit down in the chair for that long every single day. It is kind of being driven by fear a little bit. I think some of their appraisals about the way the world is are are accurate, though, mm. and so I don't want to I don't want to suggest that they aren't. That's super interesting. So we're really talking about the I don't know the the piece, the part, the increment that is other than necessity, other than passion, flagging that sometimes passion can still lead to an out of balance work-life balance, but okay. What do we do about it? Great. I love this. Uh, and I'm going to be listening carefully for the parts that relate to me. <laughs> How do we and, do and it? And maybe as we go through this, Dad, I would love to reflect on your own experience a okay, little bit great. here because we started the whole episode with a little, with a little, you know, intervention joke. So we might as well just embrace <laughs> it fully here. Um, but okay. So if you're listening to this and you're a therapist or a psychologist or whatever, I'm going to say a lot of stuff here that you probably know a lot better than I do. Because yeah. a lot of what I'm about to talk about is this idea called the stages of change model, which is particularly used in addiction circles, but it's just sort of a general model model of how change happens. Yeah. And we're going to apply this to workaholism, but you can really think about this way more broadly than that, around almost anything that you want to change in your life. And so people go through these different phases that are pretty well known. The first one is called pre-contemplation. And uh, it's a fancy way to say that you're really not thinking about changing very much. And this is typically characterized by a degree of defensiveness, the belief that this isn't actually a problem for me. Then the second phase, contemplation, you're considering change. And I would say that this is characterized by insight, being like, oh, this is actually kind of a problem for me. Maybe I should do something about it. Third phase, preparation. You're preparing to change. This is the plan for what I'm going to do, and I'm kind of gathering the resources that I need to do it. Fourth stage, action. And this is where all of the disruption of our normal base of functioning that we've established based on this behavior comes in. This is when we actually move into change. And it's typically characterized by a feeling of stress. I'm doing the thing, even though it's really hard to do the thing. Mm. And then the fifth stage, maintenance. And this is the final stage in the kind of classic model. And it's the transformation of the action into a new habit that we have. We've created a new base. We're ongoing with the behavior. Then sometimes people include a sixth stage, relapse. When we inevitably fall off the wagon, we want to do this new thing, but we just can't stick with it. We have the moment where the computer calls to us for a solid nine-hour stretch, and we're just kind of getting that relationship with it over again. And this is a really critical moment for people where they either recommit to the way that they want to be, or they just fall into disenchantment with the whole thing, and they have to begin the phase, the cycle all over again. And I think it's great for people to locate themselves in it. And yeah, to where the, yeah, I, love I think the hinge is basically in the preparation phase where mm, do you mm-hmm. really believe it? Do you really let it land? And, you know, extreme versions of that are when people hit bottom with, you know, drug and alcohol abuse and so forth. They just get it. They're just never, ever, ever going to go there again. And something really changes for them. Less, much less dramatic forms of that, though, are really central where it just lands deep inside. Yeah. I'm going to make a shift. And you you start moving into it. I think about the word conviction, where you become convinced you're victorious in a sense. You're, you're with the victory of the change. And there can be something 
incredibly beautiful when you just look over your shoulder and you see that fork in the road. You used a phrase a little earlier, something about choice points. Yeah, you look over your shoulder and you go, you know, I'm, I'm walking a different road. I'm walking a different yeah. road. To ask you a big question here, Dad, if you don't mind, this isn't on our sheet. What do you think helps people do that? What do you think gets them to that moment in the preparation phase where they go from kind of dirtling around it and they're like, oh yeah, I know this is a thing. Oh yeah, I've got the insight. Oh, here are the things I'm kind of, I'm sort of preparing to do it, but I'm kind of half-assing it. I'm not taking it fully seriously to having that moment where just like the lights go on. I think that's one of the the big questions that's really useful. Totally. And yeah. one thing I've found that really helps, and I've realized this really quite recently, based on some mm. neuroscience so forth, which is to move to the wider view. Let's say that you're helping yourself do something that's you know often an issue for many people, my versions included, you know, eating that extra cupcake or having that extra beer or you know that extra thing. You're and you know there's a part of you that wants to do it. There's a craving for it. Okay, what happens though if you widen from the part of you? that is insistent on getting that reward to the whole of you. Opening out, into, so you get a sense of the whole of you, you get a sense of maybe you lift your gaze to the horizon, you get a sense of the whole of your mind, the whole of the situation. As soon as you start moving into that hole, it becomes much easier to walk your talk down that higher road that you really wanna walk. That's one thing I've found mm -hmm. that's super helpful. And if you just buy yourself a little time, just take a few breaths or half a minute, a minute to go to that wider view. What is the whole of you want? What's the wisdom of the whole of you distinct from the compulsion of this part of you? That's a very effective thing I find for people. So many things have craving at the front end and regret out the back. Oh. I mean, if that's not a summary of 90% yeah. of problematic behaviors, I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. Craving on be... the front end, regret out the back. I love that. That's great. Yeah. There you are dumping your anger on somebody or there you are yeah. doing this thing or there you are, you know, dawdling an extra 15 minutes to noodle around. Point being, another thing that's really helpful is to ask yourself, what am I going to be really happy that I did here? Yeah. Over the long haul. Yeah. Like maybe I'm sure. going to get 45 minutes of a good buzz, but then what kind of price am I going to pay for the rest of my day, then through my sleep cycle, and then into my day tomorrow? What's the exchange? The cost benefit, you know, 45 minutes of a good buzz, and then eight hours, 24 hours of price paid for it. And then mm. just being aware of that larger bargain in your own mind and which, what's the actual best thing for your life altogether? I find that's another really helpful thing to do. Not to do it too super rationally, but just to kind of feel how icky, what the cost will be. And how, on yeah. the other hand, how good it will feel to not have gone down that bad road, that problematic road. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a practice that I've been doing recently that is certainly not an original practice. A lot of people have talked about doing something like this. I've just taken that on a little bit more and it's been helpful for me. Where essentially I close my eyes and I do the best that I can to imagine myself and my life and my world like 10 years from now or 15 years from now, something like that. That kind of time horizon has been helpful for me about 10 years. 
And to really imagine this, and less like in a kind of very cognitive way and more in kind of a trying to just embody the person sort of way, almost on more of an emotional level, and to really sit in that. And once I've gotten my brain into that 45-year-old version of me, to really reflect on what will I wish I had done. Like, what will I wish I had done right now when I'm 45? What will I wish I had done for my life? That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. What what will I wish I had said to a friend? What will I wish I had done today in terms of my effort? All of just over and over again. And to really try to like embody that 45-year-old version of me. Or if you're doing this, you know, the 85-year-old version yeah, of you yeah. or whatever else. And then you have this really cool thing where you can open your eyes and suddenly you're 35 again. Or suddenly you're 70 again. Or suddenly you're however old you are now again. And you have an opportunity to do it over in this weird kind of way. That's great. And that's just been super useful for me. So maybe that's kind of a version of what you're talking about here, Dad. Well, the view from the porch, that's great. Yeah. I'm so glad we're talking about this. And I want to drop in two other really useful things around this preparation phase in which Mm -hmm. it's conviction and action. The first of the two, obviously, is social support. That's really yeah, totally. huge. Social support, whether it's you know a buddy to go walking with in the morning so you get some exercise, or uh, someone that you're checking with in with on a daily basis, like, hey, did you do the X today, or did you avoid the Y today? You know, that's really helpful. And other versions of that, including professional support. Okay, social support. The other one I totally want to add, it goes to something you've talked a lot about, which is identity. Mm, Yeah, love this. Your global identity. Who do you conceive yourself as? Who do you feel yourself to be? And if you kind of, literally, people could do it physically. There's, There's some cool evidence for this. You kind of move in the chair. Like, okay, like... You move into the chair, you know, like I said earlier, the noble pony and the naughty pony or the neurotic pony. You can move into the noble pony mode. Who are you? Probably sit up a little straighter and framing this as not as who do you want to be, but it's who are you, you know, in an affirmation kind of sense. Uh, who are you being, truly? Yeah. Yeah. Being, being an upright, self-respecting, happy, pick your words that work for you whatever. How how would you act as this? How do you act as this? As a kind, calm, self-respecting, already happy person, how do you act here? That's really powerful. Yeah, and I think to burrow into the identity dimension for this particular issue around workaholism, how much of that identity is based on what you are doing in that kind of a professional setting? How much of your self-worth is derived from those kinds of external pressures and views on you? Do you think of yourself as a kind of person where most of your worthiness in the world is tied to your effort in the office or the money that you can bring home for your family? And are there ways to open up that self-valuing, that self-concept to have more access to other kinds of things? Yeah. And maybe there's a place here for kind of creating a coherent narrative, like doing some exploring of how we got here. Like, why are things the way that they are? Are there perhaps very reasonable reasons that you popped out in this way, some of what you were describing earlier, Dad? Uh, Those can all be ways to sort of investigate these ideas or investigate these issues. 
It's like I, I thought, you know, psychosynthesis, I do hope that we mm. do a series on different profound therapies. Um, one of them for me is psychosynthesis, Asagioli's development. Anyway, uh, there's something in that in which he focuses on these two major dimensions in, in a person's life, love broadly and will broadly. And one way to understand will is to surrender to the best within you. I love that. Yeah. What's the best within you? And in surrendering to that, what then emerges, right? What's the manifestation? What's the movement that comes from that surrender or that is carried along by that surrender, rather? That's really wonderful, Dad. And I think that we've covered a lot of kind of big principle-based things. I do want to get in here to some specific tactics toward yeah. the end. Yeah. Yeah, that we could explore about um, that might help people with these kinds of specific issues, but then also maybe other related problems that people have. And one of the first ones that I want to talk about is addressing some of the underlying feelings mm -hmm. that have driven us to these specific kinds of coping behaviors. Because as we were saying, you know, workaholism is performed in response to stress. Addiction is performed often in response to stress. So what are those stressors and what can we do about them? Like if you're a person who feels a lot of anxiety about your personal life and there's this turning toward the work arena in order to deal with those feelings, well, addressing some of those underlying feelings and issues and unpacking them can help us kind of get to the root of the problem. And along with that, mindfulness, awareness, self-awareness, so that you can in real time start observing these different motivations that tug you in different directions. And I, I do find that it could well be that when the dust settles, the noble pony leads you to clock 10 hours a day building your business, but you're doing totally. it for its reasons, not because the neurotic pony is lashing you with a psychological whip to appease the internal audience day after day. And self-awareness and mindfulness of that granularity can, can really help you tell the difference. I think that's totally right. And to me, part of this is just about being able to be at choice mm. about why we're doing what we're doing and to be able to make moral choices that we're conscious of in the moment. So we're making the moral choice and we are free to make it, whatever that means to you. As you were talking about, and as we've talked about throughout this conversation, Dad, there are a lot of reasons that a person might work very hard yeah. in their life. And many of those reasons are very moral and very upstanding and very wonderful. And so it's not so much the issue of doing a lot of work, it's the issue of why are we doing a lot of work and what are we trying to accomplish with that work that we're doing. And maybe a piece of what you've talked about, Dad, in terms of like moving to that wider view, mm. which could plausibly be related and is related to some different cortical networks in the brain, mm -hmm. that's some That's pretty right. cool stuff that people can look into if they want to, is what we've talked about in the past a little bit, which is the idea of being and doing. And I wonder if some of this whole thing, if some of the like, because you've asked these questions about, do people feel good while they're doing the work? Are they motivated by the work? Are they interested in the work? I wonder how much of that is driven by a person's ability to keep on being in that feeling of being mm -hmm. while they are engaged in the act of doing. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Wow, that's... A really huge thing. I mean, you're getting at these classic distinctions between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, being interdirected, outer directed, yeah, you know, eudaimonic well being and hedonic well being, blah, blah, blah. And I think there's a dimension to that 
exploration that's even deeper in that mm-hmm. to build on a to, to kind of bring in something here in the last six months or so i've been exploring more the distinction in early buddhism between being and becoming and so the buddha identified these different objects of craving that create problematic suffering and harms and one of the dynamics of that is the craving for becoming who are you becoming mm-hmm. What is coming into being? What is becoming in the world? And an orientation there, which then relates to the ways in which biologically the brain is a becoming machine. It's hyper-focused on prediction and expectations and then matching reality against prediction and using that to improve motor behavior in young children. And then you know models are built on top of that in the architecture of the mind. And you can just watch yourself. How hard mm. is it? even if you're quietly meditating and you don't have to do anything, to keep disengaging from the planning, expecting, anticipating movies that keep getting generated, you know, in the theater of the mind. So I think that's part of it. You know, it speaks to Chikmet Mihai's work on flow, that when we're really in being, action is flowing through us, doing is flowing through us, but we're really centered in being. And we're we're rational. We're we're rational is not quite the right word. We're we are in reality about the results of what we're doing, and we're taking into account, and we have goals and we have aims. But all that is extremely light, and what most is of what's happening is a resting in the present moment of being, and that's kind of an aspiration, right? But I think that is a way out of a lot of workaholism, and if you Gosh, when you're in touch with that, as people can be fairly quickly if they focus on it, there's such a sense of well-being. You're kind of frictionless. And time is moving through you. You're moving through time, but without friction. Mm-hmm. That's how it mm-hmm. feels. And then when you, and without contraction. So it's expansion and frictionless and content. And yet, and so then by contrast, when you start getting into the, the mode of workaholism, which has a quality of contraction and pressure and self-referentiality and all the rest of that. Ooh. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's really like, noticeable. Just totally. you're sitting there with your bare feet in the warm sand and then putting on a pair of shoes that are three sizes too small. Ooh, you know, you instantly the contrast uh, draws you much more into being. Great exploration there, Dad, of a lot of different stuff, I think, that I certainly find really interesting and I do think relates very directly to this particular kind of issue, which is so tied to the doing mode of the brain. And that kind of contracted, self-referential, hyper-focused mode that we can drop into so easily. And to maybe help people out a little bit, I do want to name a couple of just very practical interventions here that are a little bit less kind of like psychological and spacey in the way that we've been talking about so far and a little bit more kind of focused and down to earth, which, hey, might appeal to some of the workaholics out there. Who knows? Uh, So the first one is track your time. A lot of people have no idea how much time they're spending working. It just becomes this endless thing. It's just what they do. Tracking my time has been totally transformative for me since I started doing it about five years ago. And I tracked essentially every hour of my work life since then. It's been very helpful. And then related to that, scheduling time off can be a really, really effective practice if you have a personality type, which tends to be a little bit more driven toward uh, neuroticism and uh, those like type A personalities that tend to get snared by workaholism. Because 
that type of person tends to like to feel like they're being productive. And so if you can turn your time off into something that is still kind of productive because it's in your Google calendar or whatever, that can actually be super helpful. And that's been really helpful for me too. That's great. Actually, I'd have to say one of the single most um, high impact compared to low effort uh, interventions Mm. I know as a longtime psychologist is exactly this, tracking your time. Do it in a way that takes less than five minutes a day. A simple way to do it is to get an Excel spreadsheet or some kind of spreadsheet. And the uh, columns are different kinds of activities you want to categorize. And the rows are 15-minute intervals. So it's kind of – and then you print out one sheet per day. And over time, the columns become more differentiated and because you start mushing categories together because you don't care. But then you start teasing apart certain things that you do care a lot about. Mm -hmm. And then you sum across the days at the end of the week. And it's really wild to do that if you're in a relationship with someone and there's any question about housework or childcare, you know, or how much time you're spending together. It's an incredibly powerful, simple thing that takes, like I said, five minutes a day once you're set up to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. And it has been, again, very, very helpful uh, for me, it was it was really helpful for our family back in the day. I remember being a teenager, and we yeah. used to get into all of these snarls about who was doing what with housework. And then we started just tracking all of it, and it all became so simple because it was so obvious. It was like just right there on the sheet of paper. Another thing that you can do uh, is, and this could be a little complicated and think about whether or not you want to do it, is you can give other people a little bit more influence over your behavior, ah. particularly if they're people that you trust. It has been very helpful for me to make Elizabeth my uh, lovely partner and a therapist. That helps, but you know, not everybody has access to that one, to make her the arbiter of some things in my work life. She has been increasingly clear to me that, Forrest, it's 7 p.m. It is time for you to exit the computer. It is time for you to not be setting up the next podcast episode. It is time for you to not be on Google Scholar. We have other things we need to go and do together. <laughs> and, and so that's... At least you're not shooting heroin. Okay, come on. Look on the yeah, 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 I mean, exactly right. You know, I'm not so bad. But, but anyways, the point is that, like, I just kind of give her that role. Yeah, and, yeah. and I seed that over to her. And I go, you know what? This is your... Your arena is being the decider of like when it's time to pull the plug and to take that person seriously if there's somebody that you can trust. That can be really helpful. And then I think last, maybe just thinking about the scripts you're living, Mm, the stories uh you're telling yourself about how you have to be to be a good enough person. That's been a real one for me to kind of gradually become mindful of and extricate myself from, become increasingly free of yeah, the tolls to pay to be a good enough person. Well, I think you've dropped a real banger at the end here, Dad. And I do want to ask you a question at the end, if you're okay with it. You yeah. don't know that this is coming, Dad, but I like springing these on you occasionally. So at the very beginning of the conversation, we talked about, you know, this is not an intervention. We joked about yeah. that. And I think that you would probably say, hey, there have absolutely been some times in my life where I have been in that phase of narrow, focused concentration on a task, a task that was meaningful to me, a task that really mattered, but one that, hey, maybe I got a little too wrapped up in. And then over time, I think that you have, even though you remain a hard worker and all of that, you remain working a lot of hours a week, you have gotten more space around it and more freedom in the ways that we've talked about in terms of your own behavior. And I'm wondering maybe to ask two questions. First. What did it feel like or what tended to pull you into that more narrow focus, that kind of workaholic sort of tendency, broadly defined? And then what helped you 
widen it out? What helped you extricate yourself from it a little bit more? Well, summarizing 50 years, kind of. Yeah. Briefly, right out of college, I got involved in creating workshops and doing a kind of work that was incredibly satisfying. I used all of my abilities and da 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 And then for various reasons, I by the time I was 24, 25, I disengaged from that. And it took me probably close to 30 years to get back into what felt like the main current of the river of using all of my capabilities in a way that was very full and actually productive. And people should not underestimate how hard it can be to get back into the main current of the river, if you will, of their own actualizations, of their what they care about and what their talents are and what they love doing. You know, the intersection of those three, what you care about, what your talents are at, and what you love doing. It can take a while. And the truth is, when you're out of that main current and you're kind of spun into a backwater, as it were, even if it's a first world problem, definitely of a backwater, still, it can take a lot to swim against the tide and against the stream to get back into that main line. So there there can be a reasonableness, you know, a reasonableness, let's say, to the amount of effort it takes to get back into the main line, to go back into graduate school in your 30s when you've got two kids. So this is this is a thing for people to reflect on over the 50-year trajectory, let's say, of their work life altogether, you know. And so part of it for me was the effort it took to get back into the main current gradually paid off. And mm. just clock that extra hour or two a day, working your way back into the current, it, it adds up over time. Second, as, as you do that, and as I did that, you can internalize the social supplies that maybe we're missing and gradually feed the neurotic pony. <laughs> so it gradually mellows out and becomes more noble. Um, I hope I'm not offending anyone with my terminology here. I love all my ponies. They're all me. They're all part of me. <laughs> and so that, that happens. You, you, so the, the sense of something missing, the deficiency motivation gradually falls away because you've actually fed it through taking in the good repeatedly. That's mm. been really important. The last thing has been just a real exploration of the intersection of passion and peace in which mm. you can be passionate about something while being completely peaceful on the inside about it and how to do that together. Because usually when we're really passionate about stuff, that tends to push us much more into drivenness and finding a way to be peaceful inside while also passionate toward things one cares about, including social good. And that's a great answer, Dad, and I appreciate you being personally revealed here at the end of this one. Mm. And just as a as a statement, I totally love this episode. I thought this was such a cool one. I thought I got something out of it personally. And just the opportunity to dig in this into this stuff with you was was really cool, and I really loved it. So thanks for doing this with me today. Yeah, I hope this is good for you too, Forrest, because you don't seem at all like a workaholic. <laughs> Oh, I I don't think I am prone to these issues, uh, you know, just in my core nature. I, I just really don't think I am. But can I can I take some lessons from the broader things that we were talking about here? Absolutely. And that's what we were trying to do with this episode, is to make it both appropriate for somebody who 
specifically struggles with workaholism, but also to make it useful for people who uh, could be dealing with, with almost anything out there. So thanks for listening today. I loved this episode with Rick that was focused on dealing with workaholism. And also more broadly, how we can think about dealing with any kind of systemic behavioral issue that we might have. We began the episode by explaining what workaholism is and how it's different from people who either have to work a lot based on broader systemic social economic forces, or people who just really love what they're doing and are very committed to it in these different kinds of ways. One definition of workaholism that I like is the drive to work excessively and compulsively, and it's that compulsive aspect of it that it has in common with other forms of addiction that really define workaholism to me. Workaholism is not the single parent who is working hard to make ends meet. It isn't the person working at the tech company where the expectation is that you're going to be there 80 hours a week or you're going to get fired. Those are external forces that are constraining our behavior. Workaholism is the usage of work as a coping mechanism, a behavior that we perform in response to stress, and a way to avoid other kinds of painful thoughts and feelings that might be going on inside of our lives. Maybe avoid other relationships that are causing us stress, or avoid uh, things we fear about ourselves that might be stressful to us. And in the second part of the conversation, Rick and I went through a number of reasons that somebody might engage in workaholic behaviors. We talked about perfectionism. We talked about the construction of our unique self-concept and how that self-concept might be tied to performance and work environments. And Rick made a great point about the power that we have of the internalized audience, our fears and projections of how other people out there in the world might respond to us, and the ways in which we internalize this into ourselves and perform for that internal and often highly critical audience. But what might life be like if we could take a little bit of separation from it, if we could maybe wake up one day and just turn it off? How would we be different? How would we behave differently out in the world? And how would we treat ourselves differently inside of our own minds? We then talked for a little while about how workaholism is effectively a culturally validated form of addiction. And that's one of the reasons that it's so difficult to deal with. We have a broader culture that puts an enormous amount of demand on people, creates job insecurity, high workplace competition, often low compensation, poor work-life balance policies, all of this stuff that makes it very difficult to survive in the world if you are not grinding away. And then there's the general cultural glorification of overwork, things like sleeping at the office or the badge of honor of working 60 or more hours a week. And then layered on top of this, we have this entanglement of busyness with productivity, when the truth is that if we're more productive, we should be able to do more stuff in less time, hopefully freeing up more time for other kinds of activities, right? But there's this thing called Parkinson's Law. Work expands to fill the time available for its completion. It doesn't matter how productive you get because there's always something else to do if you are given the time to do it. And so we've got these broader social forces that are a huge part of the workaholism puzzle. 
And there's a demographic aspect to this as well. It's very easy for us to pull a vision in our mind, maybe from, as I said during the episode, Mad Men or some other uh, cultural reference, that the kind of person who is a workaholic is a older, typically white man who is working in a high-pressure, classic business situation. But the truth is that the research that we have suggests almost the opposite from that, that people who are self-employed are more likely to be workaholics, women are more likely to be workaholics than men, and younger people are more likely to have workaholic tendencies. And knowing these demographic features is actually a really important piece of this puzzle, because if we don't conceive of ourselves as the kind of person who could be prone to workaholism or be a workaholic, you know, other workaholics don't look like me, that kind of thing, it's really easy for us to just miss that this could be a problem for us. We then went from there, that kind of foundational stuff about what workaholism is and where it comes from, into what we can do about it. And then I introduced this general model called the stages of change model, which is typically used for other forms of addictive behavior. But we can really open it up and flesh it out and think about it as a great model for changing any kind of behavior. And it, depending on who you ask, has either five or six stages associated with it. The first is pre-contemplation. This is when you're not really considering a change. Then contemplation, you're thinking about a change. And this is characterized by having some insight into your behavior or into who you are. Then third, preparation. You're preparing to change. Fourth, action. And this is where you disrupt whatever your current pattern is and you step into a new way of being typically accompanied by some kind of plan. Then fifth, you have maintenance, and this is where you transform that action into a new habit. The behavior becomes your new baseline. And then often a sixth phase is named, and that's relapse, when we inevitably fall off the wagon. And that's a really important moment, because some people become disenchanted, and they say, you know what, I just can't solve this problem. There's nothing I can do. I tried, here we are, I fell off the wagon, I'm done. But some people are able to recommit to this new way of being and get up on the horse again. And that's why relapse was introduced as a stage in the model. People really wanted to normalize that cycle that people go through of having a new way of being that they want to be and then falling a little bit short of it. It's okay. This is normal. This is a thing that happens to people. We all go through that. The big question is whether we can recommit to this new way of being. And then we talked about particular interventions that might help somebody with workaholism. A couple that I want to flag here are, for starters, addressing the underlying feelings that are leading to those workaholic tendencies. If you're somebody who is using workaholism as a way to cope with your anxiety, maybe there are better coping mechanisms. Maybe there are things that you can do to relax that anxiety a little bit. And when we deal with that root issue, whatever's going on on the surface might change. Second, cultivating some kind of a self-awareness or a mindfulness-based practice. Because remember, the first step is always insight. So if we're able to get a, a better sense inside of ourselves of why we're feeling those feelings, why we're doing what we're doing, it really supports the ability to move into action. Then third, we talked about cultivating the view from the porch, the ability to look back on our lives from the stance of a future self. That's something that Ben Hardy talked about on the podcast that I did with him a while back. Can you really envision yourself as this future version? And then 
Open your eyes and wake up as the person you are today with an opportunity to do it all again differently. That's been a really powerful practice for me. Then finally, very practically, you can do things like tracking your time, scheduling your time off, or giving other people a little bit more authority over your behavior if that could be appropriate for you. I really loved recording this episode. I learned a lot myself, and I hope that you got some good value out of it. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, please subscribe to it. If you haven't subscribed already or subscribe to me on YouTube, if you haven't done that already, on the podcast platform of your choice, there are a million places that you can subscribe to the show on. And then if you want to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a whole bunch of bonuses in return. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.